Welcome to the Buckhead Church Podcast. At Buckhead Church, we are for Atlanta because we believe that God is for Atlanta. And these days, it's more important than ever to be known by what we're for. And we hope this podcast helps you in your life and faith. We want to help you find greater hope with fewer regrets because we are for you. If it's your first time with us, head over to buckheadchurch.org slash new so we can meet you and send you a free For Atlanta gift on us. If you're not already receiving weekly emails from us, make sure to head to our website, scroll to the bottom, click stay informed and sign up today. The best way to keep up with everything going on is to follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free Buckhead Church app. But most importantly, I hope the following episode inspires you to take the next step forward in your faith journey this week. Enjoy. There's not a ton that's happened over the last few years uh, in our culture, in our world around us, uh, that's really that entertaining. I think we would all agree with that. However, um, I, I don't know if you would agree, but it seems lately we're starting to have some fun with all of the things that we got wrong. Um, if you go back a few years, um, there was a lot of misinformation that was shared out in the world. Um, and, and I'll just say this from, from my standpoint, um, all the productivity siphoning TikToks and reels and things that, that I can dive into, the memes that are piling up about all the information that at one point um, was presented uh, by somebody who was a, a credentialed authority as fact that we now know is incorrect. Um, it, it, it just literally can be an absolute time suck. But I will tell you, and as entertaining uh, and as tempting as that is to, to talk about some of that stuff, the more entertaining thing for me, to be honest with you, is all the spinoff, the spinoff conspiracy theories that, that came from the news cycle, whether it be the pandemic or the political news cycle or, or other conflict, there's all these conspiracy theories of, about where it came from. And here's what I know. You have someone in your life, maybe you are this person, but you have somebody in your life that when they hear these theories, they, they latch onto it. It's like, here's the answer that nobody knows to everything that's really going on in, in my life. Um, God bless her. And I love her so much. My 91 year old grandmother, um, she forwards me things all the time. And, and um, she, during the pandemic, uh, when the pandemic happened, she used to live with us when we lived in Arizona in the, win in the winters. And um, she got stuck at our house uh, literally during the pandemic. Everybody's in a stay-at-home order. She couldn't go back home. So she was with us for an extended, even more extended period of time than just the winter. And our daily routine is I would get up in the morning and I would, I would go to, to, you know, get breakfast uh, for, for our little boys who got up really early. She'd come out and invariably she'd come out and she'd say, Joel, do you know what my iPad said? And, and we'd begin to have a conversation, a, a spirit of conversation. My grandmother's probably watching today and she knows I, I love her dearly. But we had all these incredible conversations. And, and, and so the funny thing is, is I wanna start off with something. We all have those people in our life. Um, our series is gonna be fairly philosophical and theological in nature. So I thought, in fairness, for those of you who like practical and helpful things, I think this will be that too. But I wanted to start off with something incredibly practical and helpful. So I wanted to talk about, talk about really quick, I want to give you a couple effective methods for responding to conspiracy theorists. Anybody, anybody interested? Check this out. You can be an adult, by the way, and, and most of us do this, but if you're going to be an adult, be strategic. Say, interesting. Are there any other credible sources, which you're giving them a lot of credit because they probably don't have a credible source, but you're just asking them, you're pushing them a little bit. Hey, are there any other credible sources? But for most of us, you know, that's not fun. I like to try something a little more snarky like this. Wait, so it wasn't Colonel Mustard with the revolver in the conservatory? 
in which they look at you like you're crazy, but, but that's okay because that's sort of what they presented to you was crazy. So you're, you're kind of on the same playing field or maybe you're just trying to relate. And this is really important when there's a generational gap and you're trying to relate to somebody, you could just respond and say, that's not what I read on the Facebook. Because <laughs> you know, adding a definite article makes you relevant and it also ages you. Um, you some of you are one-uppers. You like the one-upper. If you're a one-upper, here, here's a good one for you. You can say, that's wild. I hadn't heard that. But do you know where they're hiding Tupac's body? <laughs> New Mexico. In case you didn't know. Um, so so you, you can you can enter that, but this is my favorite. My favorite is, and, and this usually just ends the conversation, and which, let's be honest, when somebody comes with a conspiracy theory, you're trying to figure out how to get out of that conversation anyway. So my favorite is I just say, wow, so this is how it all ends. The end of the world as we know it. And, and so there, there's, some, there's some helpful ways to deal with misinformation, which we're gonna talk about in this series, by the way. Um, a humorous way, but for the next few weeks, I wanna talk about, how to find reliable information, how to find reliable answers regarding the most important questions of life. And we're gonna look through the lens of an ancient story. And it's a story that's had some controversy and and we'll get to that in a minute, but this story has remarkable insight into the core questions of life. The, The core questions of life being, who is God or is there a God? And is this God give us purpose and meaning or is there purpose and meaning to life? And not just who is God, but who am I? And do I have purpose? Do I have meaning? Is there a reason for me being where I am, the time and place and history in which I was born and among the people of which I was born? And, and what's the best way to live? What's the best way to live out this life? And how do you find the good life? Believe it or not, um, these, these questions drive all of human culture. And not just religion, but philosophy and education, art, literatures. We're going to see even business. These questions, answers to these questions impact your life and mine day in and day out. Now, it has to be said that many of us have been the victims. I'll just say this. We've been the victims of misinformation. I'll even go as far to say that some of you, you've been the victim of misinformation by somebody like me. Somebody who got a microphone, somebody who got on TV, somebody who got up in front of people claiming to be authority and and they told you some information that you then acted upon and you later figured out was wrong and and you felt betrayed. And, And so I'll just say this, if you're here today and you're a skeptic or you're a cynic, I just want you to know that's me when I'm watching and listening to any information and I share your caution, but here's what I wanna ask. I'm not gonna ask you to check your intellect at the door. I'm not gonna ask you not to have a conversation with me, debating me while I'm talking, which I know you're debating with me anyway, and you're winning and that's okay. I don't mind that. Um, but, but here's the thing. I, I'm just gonna ask you, would you lean in? Would you lean in and instead of wondering what I'm trying to say, would you think critically, specifically about this story that we're gonna look at, which is where I wanna start. I, I wanna start uh, with this story that we're gonna talk about. And this story is the story in the scriptures of the Hebrew creation narrative. And this Hebrew creation narrative um, is a story of the origins of man. And it's the story most of us know is the story of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve uh, were a big part of the original Hebrew story and how the world came to be. And, and, and the common objection about this story is how true is the story? I mean, honestly, how reliable with all that we know about the world and science, how reliable is this story? And, and I understand, I just want you to know, I understand why many in modern Western society struggle to embrace this story. Um, but before you dismiss it, before you dismiss it based on scientific theory, 
or, or progressive reasoning um, that, that oftentimes, honestly, they try to categorize this as fairy tale. Um, I actually believe, and I just want to front, I actually believe, and, and I want to try to prove to you that this may be the truest story ever written. That the creation story might be the truest story ever written. And some of you are like, really, dude? Do you know there's a talking snake in the story? Yes, I know there's a talking snake in the story. But I also believe that people in the ancient Near East knew as well that ta- snakes don't talk. And some consider there's all sorts of different opinions about Genesis. Some consider it historical and literal. You may believe that. Some of you consider it metaphorical, others mythological. But that's a debate about the genre of the literature. That's just genre. I'm not interested in that debate. I'm not saying we couldn't debate that. But for our purposes, I don't want to debate that. I want to talk about what the story means. Because the value in a story is in the meaning of the story and the meaning of the story for your life and the meaning of the story for my life. The truth is, is this creation narrative, um, as Moses wrote this story, it began in the beginning. uh, Moses begins with this beginning of this story, uh, but he's writing to people that weren't in the beginning. His original audience was a group of people as he's writing this book. It's a group of people uh, in the ancient Near East. And, and, and these, these people were actually in, uh, the people of Israel were in exile. They had just been rescued uh, out of, uh, of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. And now they're in the wilderness. And after uh, being uh, enslaved for a period of time and they, they had been subjected to, to pagan worship and things, Moses begins to document for them, not how the world was created. That wasn't his goal. He wanted to introduce them to who was behind it and the reasons why the world was the way it is now. His goal was to reintroduce them to their creator. He wanted them to know who their creator was and he wanted specifically to reintroduce to them this creator as the ultimate authority, their ultimate authority in the world. And that their ancestors once considered this God, this Jehovah God as the ultimate authority of the world. And this was the primary concern of Moses in the beginning, not the details or the science around how the world began. We get caught up in all of that. So if you have a Bible with that as context, I would love for you to turn to Genesis chapter three. It's at the very beginning. Uh, and we're gonna go jump over the first two chapters. I'll summarize them in a second. Um, but in your, if you have a Bible app, uh, if you, there, there's a great version Bible app or if you have a physical Bible, I would love for you to open it. Uh, if you're at home, you can, I'll give you a second to go grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, and I've said this before, um, if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to have one. If you can't afford one, we'll give you one. Find somebody uh, either here or at whatever church or campus you're at. If they don't have one for you and they have to buy one, tell them to send me the bill. I want you to have a Bible. I would love for you to have one. And I want you to open it if you have one. And in Genesis chapter three, we're gonna gonna talk about this story and what it means. But Genesis chapter one, one and two, quick summary. There's God creates this world for these people to inhabit. The last thing he creates is the people that he places into the world. And the man and the woman are placed in a home for them that God's created in the Garden of Eden in in this world. And when he places them there, if you remember the story, he gives them two directives. He says, I want you to fill the earth and I want you to subdue it. I, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And then I want you to rule over the world. God, in the very beginning with two directives, he gives them a place of power and purpose and pleasure in the world. He gives them rulership and dominion over the world. This is an incredible thing. 
And in the beginning, God gives them two directives, two things to do, and only one thing not to do. Some of you don't know this. In the very beginning, when God had everything the way he wanted it, there was only one rule. How about that? Just one rule. And this was the rule. The rule was, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You will certainly die. And, and, and we find out later that this, this tree was in the middle of the garden, so it wasn't like it was hard for them to know which one it was. It wasn't gonna be like, oops, I grabbed it from the wrong tree. They knew. It seemed pretty clear and it seemed pretty simple. Genesis chapter three, beginning verse one, a new character enters the story. Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So with any, in any story, any great story, there's a protagonist and there's an antagonist. And the, the crafty serpent becomes the, the, the antagonist. Now this word crafty that's used in, in the narrative, it can mean other things. In fact, it has a very broad meaning. It's translated in other places in the scripture as cunning or subtle or deceptive. And this is the perfect depiction of the approach to Eve who's enjoying paradise. This is how the the serpent approaches her. He says to the woman, he says, did God really say, here's our phrase, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, it's doubtful that the serpent was misinformed about God's instructions. I mean, uh, we we could throw that out right away. That's not part of the story. But what is interesting to me, and nobody really asked this question, is why didn't the serpent attack her like a a, a snake normally would? I mean, we've all seen Indiana Jones, or maybe you've seen Jungle Book and the way Ka wrapped up Mowgli, or why doesn't the serpent attack? It's interesting. The serpent doesn't attack that way. There's no yelling or screaming. There's no physical altercation. The attack is... Subtle, it's crafty. He attacks her with an idea. And this idea is actually the first of three components to this this enemy. The one that Jesus, when he affirms the story later, he calls the enemy. It's the first of, of three things that the enemy or the serpent does to deceive the woman. And he starts with a deceptive idea. He, he begins with this, this idea that follows, did God really say? And he's beginning to question, getting, getting her to, to, to question uh, God's direction to her. Uh, maybe she got it wrong. Maybe he got it wrong. I mean, did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit in this garden he's placing you? I mean, that's absurd. To which the woman responds, no, 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 you got it wrong. You're the one who got it wrong. I didn't get it wrong. God didn't get it wrong. You got it wrong. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden. God didn't say that. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Which actually... It is not what God said. It, it, this is subtle. And you, you, those of you who, who love to pick apart literary works, um, there's a subtle shift that's happened. The enemy's deception as he's got her to question God's authority has already shifted the woman's perspective. It's subtle because he's crafty. But Eve negatively modifies what God said. It's evident of a negative progression in her view of God's instruction. God never said you must not touch it. 
He just said, you can't eat from that tree or you'll die. He didn't say you can't eat and you must not even touch it. This shows us Eve's beginning to lean toward a negative view of the restriction that God placed on her. And the serpent sees an opening and he strikes again. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. I mean, here's the thing. For God knows... God knows that when you eat from it, you're not going to certainly die. You, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. More deceptive ideas just placed out there to confuse Eve. And ironically, the interesting thing about this is they would turn out to be mostly true which if you know anything about deception, that's sort of the key or the basis for the most effective lies is that there's just enough truth in it to make them seem believable, but it's twisted enough just to lead you in the wrong direction. He says, you will not certainly die, which she she didn't certainly die. It wasn't like, or at least not immediately. Um, And not only that, um, he said that her eyes would be opened, which is actually what happened. Their eyes were opened to the shame of their nakedness. And it was true that they did for the first time know good and evil. Good was all they knew before. And now they were introduced to evil. And this deception had a lot of truth mixed into it. But there's something else really important going on here. The temptation involved her desire to be like God. You see, the enemy is playing to... Eve's desire to be like the one who created her. Now, this isn't important. I need to stop for just a second. Um, In the scriptures, uh, one of the things we discover is that that the enemy never creates anything. Uh, The serpent doesn't have the ability of creation, only of distortion. He can't create anything. He can only distort things. And so what he does is he uh, offers a deceptive idea that plays into a distorted desire. It's a desire that he distorts. It's a legitimate desire in her to be like the one, to reflect the one that created her. But he has distorted this desire and he's used this deceptive idea to play into that. Now, this is why this is important is because we all have God-given desires. You have desires inside of you that motivate you, that drive you. And so do I. And, and, and it's not those desires alone that get us into trouble. It's when the enemy is able to plant an idea about how we can how we, how we can satisfy that legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. And he gives us a deceptive idea that plays into a broken or distorted desire. We all have desires for, for meaning and purpose and, and progress and intimacy. And, and all of these desires are, are things that drive and motivate us. And they lead us into things. As a matter of fact, a great example of the way uh, the enemy has distorted a desire, specifically distorted intimacy, it played out on on a worldwide stage in a television show where one person was going to date 50 people at the same time to determine the one. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, this is a good idea. This is how you find intimacy. By the way, intimacy involves exclusivity and honesty, and transparency, something this show had nothing of, but this is, this is the show, right? Like, and, and when it doesn't work, inevitably it doesn't work out. I think that maybe one or two have worked out. Their, their track record is, is atrocious. Um, when it doesn't work out, the, the people, you can call them the, 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 the candidates, they move on. They actually, they actually graduate and they graduate to paradise. They have created another show so that they can get a second chance at it. 
I mean, it's ridiculous. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about and God bless you for not wasting your life <laughs> on this television show that's captivated our world. But I, I want you to see this. This can look so good. It can look so appealing. It can look so enticing. In fact, look at the next part of the story. It said, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, and when she saw it was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. When she saw with her own eyes something that seemed like it was good. Anybody been there? I mean, it was pleasing to the eye and it was desirable and it seemed like she would gain something important and meaningful from it. Instead of trusting the creator who had ultimate authority that had given her instruction, she took this misinformation, this distorted, deceptive idea that played into a distorted desire and she took the bait and she ate it. Then she gave some to the man and he ate it too. And now the enemy's strategy was complete. His deceptive idea played into a distorted desire and led them to destructive behavior. When Jesus referred to this story in the New Testament, he, he said that the enemy's goal is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And the center of this, the center of this, this threefold strategy is where this happens most effectively. This is where the enemy gets us. Because let's be honest, if it's just a deceptive idea and a distorted desire, that's just temptation, right? Temptation, no harm, no foul. Like I was, I was tempted, but I can resist temptation. And obviously the, the more the desire, the, the more the idea plays into a strong desire in me, the greater the temptation becomes. And if, if a deceptive idea is just along with destructive behavior, we call that education, right? We've all gotten bad information and we acted on something. Somebody lied to us. Somebody gave us bad information. And, and that, was, that was a learning process. We learned a lesson. It's like, now I know I'll, I'll change my behavior next time. And this down here, this, this idea of distorted desires and destructive behavior, um, that, that's really just instinct. instinct. You, you've asked yourself the question before, what was I thinking, Right? You weren't, you weren't. You were just acting on a desire that was going on inside of you. And later, as you think back on it, you think, oh gosh, I need, to, I need to set up a guardrail. I need to be careful because if I don't think about these things, it'll lead me in, into trouble. But you can make, you, you make adjustments. Here's where the problem is, is when you begin to believe an idea that plays into a strong desire that leads you over and over and over to this distorted and destructive behavior in your life. This is how the enemy steals and kills and destroys. If you don't know the story, this is a spoiler alert real quick. At the end of the story, they die. Okay, on that happy note, let's talk a little bit more about where everything went wrong and why. Because this is so important. I think this story is brilliant. At the inception, where everything went wrong in the beginning was when the enemy, when the serpent got Eve to question the ultimate authority of her life. Got to question, got her to question the authority of God specifically. 
And when the enemy, I would say the greatest thing the enemy can get you to do and can get me to do is to question God's authority, specifically God's authority on what's true, what's true for your life, what's true for our relationships, what's true in your career, what's true in terms of meaning and purpose. When when this happens, we become vulnerable. When when, uh, the enemy gets us to question the authority on the creator of the world, of the creator of the world, on his take on truth and reality, we open ourselves up to misinformation. I, I believe the God of the Bible gives us the reality of the world. That's what the scriptures are. It's the truth about the way things are, the truth about what's happening in the world, the truth about the way we should live our lives. And it's interesting, when God gave them information, he gave them information in the form of an instruction and a warning. And it seemed really clear, don't do this or you will certainly die. But, but here's the question that, that Eve, when, when the serpent approached her, he got her to ask the question, but yeah, but is that true? I mean, is that reality? I mean, maybe I need to figure that out for myself. Why should I trust him? What if he is holding out on me? Does he really know me? Is he just trying to control me? And what did he mean by eat it like all the time or taste it? Like, what did he mean by that anyway? And I'll just say, if you have kids in your home, you live with this all the time. I live with this all the time. We have four kids, two bigs, two littles. And, and one day uh, I was, I got, after I got home, um, my, I was listening in the other room. I was listening to a conversation my wife was having with our two littles. And she was basically telling me to get out of the pantry, like no treats before dinner. You've had this conversation. If you have kids, no treats, you can't eat any treats before dinner. And so my wife had to run out a few minutes later. She had to run out. She, I think she was going out. I think we were, we were picking up some food for dinner that night. I think she ran out to pick up food. And, and two seconds later, after she left, my six-year-old comes around the corner with an ice cream bar in his hand. And I lost my mind. I'm like, what are you doing? Like two minutes ago, your mom just said, no treats before dinner. And he looked at me deadpan, as serious as he could be. He said, dad, this is ice cream. It came out of the freezer, not the treat basket. She didn't say anything about ice cream. So, so that we don't get messed up on our definitions, I want to define a couple of terms so we know what we mean by what we're talking about. Here's a couple of definitions. The first one is around truth. The best definition of truth I've ever heard is truth is reality. In its simplest form, truth is reality or that which corresponds to reality, which makes lies unreality or that which is imaginary, or that which is false. I mean, that's, that's what lies are. It's unreality. And, and here's the thing. This is where I'm going to stretch your minds a little bit today. This is extraordinary. In fact, the extraordinary uniqueness of humanity is our capacity to hold reality and unreality in our minds at the same time. It doesn't bother us. We can hold both of these in our minds. As a matter of fact, Did you know that Homo sapiens are the only species on the planet with the capacity to imagine unreality, to imagine what isn't, but what could be, and take what isn't or what is unreality and work together to bring it into reality? Here's an example, 120 years ago, unequivocally, across the planet, universally, everyone believed that humans could not fly. To believe anything else was a lie. It was imaginary. It was a figment of your imagination until the aviation pioneering Wright brothers showed up on the scene. 
And today, humanity's ability to fly is an undisputed reality in the world. We were able, a few people were able to take something that was unreality and bring it into reality. Some of you have done this. You've created businesses. You, you've, you've gone on endeavors. And something that somebody said was impossible, it could not be done. You were able to forge and make happen and make it done. And that is the ability of humanity to bring something from unreality into reality. But there's a problem here. Because not everything we believe in that's in unreality will eventually become reality. There are certain things that we think are possible that aren't actually possible. Certain things that we think could be true that don't actually end up being true. As a matter of fact, John Mark Comer, uh, in his book, uh, Live No Lies, he says this. He describes perfectly the problem with this. He says, our capacity to hold unreality in our minds is our genius, but it's also our Achilles heel. Because not only can we imagine unreality, but we can also come to believe in it. We can put our faith in ideas that are untrue or worse, that are lies. Now, the easiest place to see this is in the culture wars. I promise we're not going to get into a political debate today, but both the left and the right, both conservatives and liberals have a web of ideas they present as true information. We can all agree on that, right? There's a group over here that's going, no, no, this is what's true about this, about the world, about the way to fix it. And there's another group of people who are going, no, no, they don't know what they're talking about. This is what's true about the world, what's happening and how we need to fix it. And there's two separate sets of ideas, these web of ideas or this information that they're presenting. The problem is they're presenting it as true, but not all of their facts correspond with that, which is reality. And you look at it and you go, I don't, I, I hear what you're saying, but that's just not reality. You know this, news as it once existed in our world has vanished. We just have talk shows now. Um, We've abandoned a shared sense of reality, opting instead for alternative facts or alternative views on facts that fit our social or political allegiances or persuasions or agendas or desires, whatever, whatever you would describe that. Here's the thing I want you to know, and don't miss this. If, if, if you get lost in, you know, this political tension, what's Joel trying to say? I mean, you, you missed the whole thing. Here, here's what I'm saying. The greatest threat to our society is an attack on a shared sense of trust in a baseline of facts. Let me say that again. The greatest threat to our society is the attack on a shared sense of trust. All of us being able and willing to buy into a baseline of facts, not what we believe about those facts, not what should be done about those facts, but we don't have a shared sense of facts that we can agree upon. Now, this doesn't just open the door to misinformation. This blows the doors off the hinges to misinformation. And at the root of all of this, and most of you know, and we'll get into this in future weeks, but the root of all this is a desire for power and control. Power and control over people and society and the world. Power and control over your life and power and control over my life. And this isn't new. But we don't understand where this is leading to. We don't understand how this is evolving in our society. 
In 1951, um, Hannah Arendt, she wrote a book. She released a book titled uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism. I can pretty much guess that nobody in here has read that book. The Origins of Totalitarianism is all about how the Nazi regime uh, began and the ideology at the beginning of it. And and it's, it's a commentary on communism in general. And listen, I just want you to listen to what she says and how relevant this is. This is in 1951. This is what she writes in this book. She says, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction or the reality of experience and the distinction between true and false or the standards of thought no longer exist. The, the, the people that are most likely to be overtaken, most likely to be ruled by a totalitarian rule are people who deny that fact and fiction and true and false actually exist, that there's objective truth in our society. And 70 years later, this sounds less like the commentary on events from another century or a world far, far away and the sober depiction of our cultural moment. That's what it sounds like. But here's the thing. We're going to talk about that more in a few weeks, but focusing our attention there would be letting us off the hook way too easily today. My interest is not in who's controlling the misinformation, the cultural war. Certainly I'm concerned about that. That matters. But for the sake of this series, that's not my interest. My interest is who's controlling the misinformation in your life. Who's controlling the misinformation that's coming into and controlling and directing that's playing into your desires and leading you towards destructive ways of living? Here's my question. Who's the ultimate authority regarding what is true? Who do you think the ultimate authority is when it comes to what is true? Who's the ultimate authority in your life regarding what is true? Who's the ultimate authority, really? Who determines what's true when it comes to current cultural ideas? Who do you look to? Where do you compare those against? When when it comes to your desires, the things you want, the things that you think God's placed in your heart, the desires in your heart, who do you look to? Who determines what's true when it comes to those things? Who determines what's true when you're trying to figure out the best way to live, the best path to follow, the, the, the right way to do relationships, the right way to conduct your business? The right, the right decisions for you to make in your personal life. You see, the enemy's trying to plant ideas in your mind and they play into desires that have been distorted. And if you let him, he's gonna lead you over and over and over to behaviors that are destructive. Now, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I, I started at, up at North Point Community Church as the lead pastor there. And not long after uh, I had joined the staff there, I'd, I'd been on staff at North Point, then I was down here at Buckhead Church, and I went back to North Point, and I became the lead pastor at North Point. And, and not too long later, um, one night after a late meeting, I was at a stewardship team meeting uh, with Andy. And I hung around afterwards, and I needed to talk to him about something, and I was, I was fearful. I didn't really want to bring it up. I've been dragging, but I knew I needed to talk to him. And and I, my wife and I were going through a really difficult season in our marriage. And I just felt like he needed to know. And, and it was really, really tough. Like, I mean, I, this isn't just like we had a fight. It was like, it was really, really difficult. Like, I told him that night that I, I wasn't sure if we'd make it. That's the truth. And um, 
And I, I said to him, I said, hey, look, if, if you need me to step down or you need me to take some time off, or uh, that's certainly understandable. I just, I, I felt like you needed to know. I'll never forget, Andy asked me a series of questions and I, I didn't ask his permission to tell this story, but I think it's okay. Um, he, he, he asked me a few questions. He said, well, there's no moral failure. And you, as far as I can tell, you haven't done anything that, that disqualifies you from your job. He, here's what I think this means. He, here's what I think is true. I think all, all that this says about you is that you're human and that marriage is hard. And then he said this, and I chose to believe him. This is important. He said, you will be okay. And God will use this. And he was right. And God has. See, the enemy wants you to doubt what reality, what the truth really is to doubt God and his version of the truth, which is the reality of all that is. Instead, he wants you to trust your own inner intuition through which he has planted deceptive ideas that play into distorted desires. And that's what's in your inner intuition. We're gonna talk more about this next week, how that comes about. And he wants you to trust that as an accurate compass to what you desire in life, to getting what you desire in life, to experiencing the good life, the, the, what, what, you know, actually God promised in the beginning. He said, I want to lead you to life to the full. And the enemy's going, you don't, you don't need God for that. You don't need to trust him. In fact, he's holding out on you. You're not going to get to that. If you want to experience this, you need to trust your own inner tuition, inner intuition about how to get to that. And that is where sin entered the world. Not eating a piece of fruit. Ignatius of Loyola, a 16th century theologian, he said it this way. He said, sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. That's where it began. You know, it's interesting. The name Adam, it actually means human. Some of you knew that. The name life, or name Eve, it means life. This is the story of human life. I believe it's the truest story of humanity. It's the origination of human life and how it evolved into its current state, where it all began and where it all went wrong. And it began and is rooted in a struggle for power and control in your life and in my life. So here's where I want to finish today. And this is a real question. I want you to think about this. My question for you is, who is God? Who is God? This, the answer to this question, who is God? Who is God really determines the answers to all the other questions. We're going to get to those in the coming weeks. But as we close today, I want you to think about this and I want you to be honest. Who is God? As a matter of fact, more specifically, who is your God? Who's your God? You see, what got twisted in the beginning is this desire to be like God because you were all, we were all created in his image. And it's been distorted into a desire to be God, to be the God of our own lives. Maybe not the God in the world. Now, there's not many of us running around going, I want to be the God. There are a few of those people in the world that are notorious, but not, not, I'm not trying to be a conqueror over, take over the whole world. 
but I want ultimate control in my life. I want the ability to define my own reality, to determine what's true for me. That's something we can all relate to. It's as the lyrical poet, Billie Eilish, who I understand is in town this weekend. She said it this way, the ability to do what I want, when I want. Come on, isn't it true? There's a little bit of that in all of us. So my question is, who's the God of your life? Who's your ultimate authority? You owe it to yourself to be honest with yourself about the answer to that question. Is it you? Is it logic? Is it reason? If so, whose logic? Whose reason? Is it your feelings? Is it science? Is it chance? Who's the ultimate authority? Who do you trust? Come on. Who do you trust when it comes to your happiness and hope and peace and security and sexuality and money and business and your decisions in your life? Who is your God day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision? Who's your God? Really? They pray for you. Or it's a weighty question. Imagine there's lots of people here in the room, in other rooms, maybe in their living room, maybe in their car, watching and listening. And at this point, they're, they're wondering, practically, functionally, who is the real God of my life? And some of us who are here, some of us listening If we're really honest, um, we believe in God. We believe in you. We may believe in Jesus. But to say that you're the God of our lives is, is just not honest. It's not genuine. It's not true. So I would just ask if, if, if that's you today and, and with everybody's head still bowed, if you're in the room or, again, you're in another room, It doesn't matter what room you're in. I just, in a second, I want to ask you to raise your hand if you would say, hey, I believe in God and, and I believe in Jesus, and, and I'm, but I'm not sure he's my God. Maybe you're wrestling with the decision, the decision to surrender. And maybe you want to, but you're not sure you have enough information to decide that you want to surrender fully to God as the God of your life. I want to pray for you. And the reason I want you to lift your hand is not because I can see it, because I can see it for the people in the room, but, but you may be in another room and, and it's not for me, it's for you. And it's for God because I believe God sees you and I believe he cares. And it's, a, it's an attitude on the outside. It's a posture on the outside that says, God, I, I need answers. I, I, I need your help. Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show yourself to be true to me? Would you bring people around me that would help me understand who you are and why you're trustworthy to be my God? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you real quick. Would you just raise your hand? Wherever you are, whatever room you're in, if that's you and you're going, I believe in God, but I'm not sure he's my God, I want to pray right now for you. God, I pray for these people, wherever they are. I pray that as you see them, you would see this as a prayer, as a desire to reach out to you to, as if to say, God, I want to know you more. I want to know you in such a way that I know I can trust you. I know that you're going to lead me away from death and destruction and that you're going to lead me to life to the full 
to the th- sort of thriving and flourishing and everlasting life that you promised for me, the kind of life that you designed me for when you created me in the beginning. God, I pray that you would show up in their lives. I pray that you show up in the form of people, of truth, of other ways for them to connect with you and that you meet them right where they are. I pray that we would be the church to them, whatever church that they're a part of, that it would be that we would be the church together and we would pursue this as a community understanding what it looks like to make you our God. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more messages like this, we've made it super easy. First, you can hit the subscribe button to get these messages on your device every week. Second, you can download our app from iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your apps. Or third, you can check out our YouTube channel. Just search for Buckhead Church and make sure to subscribe. Have a great day.